Welcome to Bible study. It's very good to be with you again, and uh, please stay with us. Uh, today it's an amazing Bible study, and uh, we'll learn about the Jesus and Revelation and the end times. Today I'd like to introduce to you our panel, and uh, welcome. I will start from my right here. Stephen, welcome to the program. Hi, thanks, Nick. Nice to be here. And we got Alan. Uh, to the program. Welcome, Alan, for the first time coming to the Bible study, yes? Yes, thanks. Uh, it's great to be here. Now, we've got uh, also Lija there. Welcome, Lija. Hi, everybody. And Len is our facilitator today. And uh, thanks, Len, for preparing this Bible study and welcome to the program. Yes, hello, listeners. It's good to be with you and it's always good to study the Word of God. This week, we, as Nick alluded at the beginning, uh, we'll be talking about salvation and the end time. There is a, an introductory text that I'd like to share with you this morning, and it comes from the book of John, that's Gospel of John, chapter 4 and verse 10. It says, This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. But you know, this is quite a lot different, as we'll discuss in a moment, than what most world religions teach. And there's a big difference between Christianity and world religions. Now, panel, can anybody tell me what is the biggest difference between Christianity and other major world religions, Hinduism, Buddhism, and so on and so on? Well, my understandings are pretty simple, but uh, I remember some years ago reading a, a book by a guy called Richard Rice, and Richard Rice in his book made the observation that Christianity is different from the other world religions insofar as if you don't have the founder, then you've got nothing with Christianity, whereas with the other world religions, the quality of their teachings remains the same with or without their, le with, with or without their main teacher. Yeah. Does that make sense? And so that means that Christianity is more about the person well, rather, let me rephrase. The teachings that Jesus gives um, center on him and what he has done, whereas the teachings in other religions um, can still have value without their main teacher. But without Jesus, Christianity has nothing to offer. Okay. I'd say there are a couple of other reasons or a couple of other differences. Anybody got an idea? Well, one of those things is that Christianity, our saviour, our leader, Jesus is not dead. Mm, that's very true. He rose from the grave. He's alive and well and ministers for us right now. Other religions don't have that. Buddha died and, well, I don't know about the Hindus. They've got all sorts of gods, thousands and thousands of gods. Yes, Lydia? Yes, difference between our religion and some other religions is that I worship, uh, when I talk to God, in my prayers, I talk like to an, a real God, a real Jesus that can understand me, that can answer to my prayers. I just talk to God about my everyday realities and everyday needs. So Jesus, God is the one who answers me. So I was sitting in the office of a Chinese businessman one day and I was interested to see up on the wall was a little shrine. And in that shrine was an electric candle burning. And we were talking about business. And of course, one major part of business is trust. And he said this to me. 
He said, I can trust you because I know you're a Christian. And he said, you can trust me. And he turned around to his little shrine and pointed at this little image of Buddha and he said, my Buddha is watching. And I thought, well, it's wonderful that you can trust me and I can trust you. But your Buddha is just a bit of plastic or whatever it was made from. But my God is alive and well and interested in me and loves me. Now, in that introductory text I read to you, it said, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. Who is God? That's a really good question. Reminds me of a story in the Bible where Philip was talking to Jesus and he came to Jesus and he said, show us the Father or show us God and that will be enough for us. And I guess that's kind of the same question. He was saying to Jesus almost, who is God, I suppose, in a a roundabout kind of a way. And Jesus' answer was a really straightforward one. He says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. So if we ask the question, who is God? then the answer that the Bible gives is that if we look at Jesus and we see how he is, then we know something of who God is. So is the word God singular or plural? Well, the Hebrew word for God, or one of the Hebrew words for God is Elohim, right? And that is plural. The the im ending is a plural. So I guess what I would say is that um, God is singular but in plural. It's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Because many people just think of one entity, one personality, but in Genesis, in uh, God talking about the creation, he said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God can apply as both singular and plural, and as Christians, we believe in what's called the triune God, or the Trinity, yes, Nick? This topic uh, in itself is a huge, huge subject to talk around uh, about the nature of God and uh, who God is and so on. Unfortunately, in the days we live in, uh, there are so many deceptions, you know, in regard to this uh, subject uh, about who God is. And today we are going to look at the personalities, you know, of uh, God, the Father, Son and Holy Spirit. And I hope that we can um, let the Bible speak for uh, for this, because otherwise we'll be really trapped in this um, kind of thing. Because as I said, I I met a lot of people around, and they are all confused about even the word Trinity, you know, or the Triune God or the Godhead. There are quite few few things there. I would like to say one one thing, Len, just to how I understood myself at some point in time. God is a triangle united together, you know, all the three sides. If they are connected together, they are God. It's a triangle, you know. Mm. But if you separate them, it's only one side, you know, the other side and the other side. You cannot call it triangle. That's, in my understanding, you cannot call God if they are not one, if they are not united together. I guess there's lots of analogies that people use to help understand the Trinity, isn't there? Um, and they're all as good as they are, but none of them actually perfectly can capture the whole idea because God is God um, and we are but his creatures. And so for us to get our head around who God is is probably a bit of a task that is beyond us. 
um, but God does show something of who he is, yeah. and that for me is what is most important. So God doesn't reveal who all, all of who he is, but he reveals enough of who he is in the scriptures so that I can have confidence in him and be assured that my life well, my life is important to him, which, again, is an amazing concept in and of itself. I could rattle on about this for a long time, Len, but that probably isn't going to help you very much. Yeah. Lydia, you want to say something? God is love. The whole Bible defines God as love. So God's salvation begins in his love. God does not save us because we love him or, or because we obey him. But salvation is not based on our merits, but for his own sake. Okay, now God is love. That's um, repeated a number of times in the Bible. And what we would like to explore now is the love of the Father because the Godhead is the Father or God the Father, God the Son or sometimes called God the Word, who's Jesus, and then God the Holy Spirit. So, Alan, would you look up and read for us, please, John 14, verses 9 and 10. Sure thing. I'll be reading from the New King James Version, and it says, Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. So what do you think it means that whoever, whoever sees Jesus has seen the Father? Does that mean they're sort of like twins or what? And I believe that the, because Jesus came to be like one of us and live on this earth and to show the Father in what he was doing and living every moment in his life. We can again go uh, sideways from, from here just looking at that point, but I believe that Jesus gave us enough evidence about who the Father is that in, in conjunction with the written word, which Jesus referred all the time in, his, uh, in the period when, when he was here. And from those two things, if we put together, because again, I, uh, I remember that I read somewhere that God revealed himself in many ways. And, and I think I remember just five ways of in which God revealed himself to us. And one will be like in what he did in the creation, you know, mm. for us in, in the word of God, in Jesus, the prophets. And one important thing which I believe it's very, very crucial for us to understand and practice is God can reveal himself through our relationships. Mm. Okay. Alan? Um, I believe that the Bible interprets itself. And I found a passage in Hebrews um, chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, which I believe um, describes what I read previously in John. It says, God, who at various times and in various ways mm. spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory, and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Yeah, did you? Oh, you finished? 
Um, I just wanted to make a commentary. So the, I want to bring to emphasis that um, Jesus is the brightness of God's glory and the express image of God's person. And I just wanted to share another passage of Scripture in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15, where it says that He, Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Now, the word firstborn here in the Amplified Bible says the preeminent one, the sovereign and the originator mm. of all creation. So we can clearly see that um, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So he's what we can see of God. Yes, Ledger. Jesus came on this earth to show the character of God because... Uh, as he says, whoever seen me sees the Father. Okay. I think that's very good to show the characteristics of the Father. Now, some people have the idea that God is stern and vengeful and if you do anything wrong, he's going to zap you. Is he like that? That's the question. Well, we've got some texts that we're going to read and you can uh, hear from that what God the Father is like. I want to read to you from Psalms 145, verse 9 and 10. It says, The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. All you have made will praise you, O Lord. Your saints will extol you. So it doesn't say there that he's uh, stern and vengeful. It says he's gracious and he's compassionate. Stephen, would you like to read what it says about God in Psalms 143? Yeah. Verse 8. 8? Yeah, Psalm 143, verse 8. This is the New Living Translation. It says, Let me hear of your unfailing love each morning, for I am trusting you. Show me where to walk, for I give myself to you. I like that first part where it talks about God having an unfailing love for mm. us each morning. Yeah. So that suggests something even more. It suggests that God is faithful with his love. He's not on and off, hot and cold, but he's faithful each morning. Lydia, would you like to read what it says in Jeremiah twenty nine eleven about God, the Father? For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. So what's that sound like? What sort of a God is he? He's a God that he cares for us and he wants to see us prosper, having hope and uh, happy and healthy. So this image that you sometimes see in cartoons of God with um, lightning coming out of his fingers or holding some balances and there's one side leaning down and the other side up and working out whether people should be protected or whatever. They have false images. They're not right at all. And also, Len, uh, because we are studying this topic, salvation and the end time, the enemy is working his way to deceive as many as possible. And you mentioned, Len, just one, uh, one way, you know, through uh, deceive even the, the most innocent ones, like the children, you know, from early age, uh, starting to create a false image of God. And unfortunately, even looking at myself, which I'm not that young now, <laughs> you know, I wish uh, 
<laughs> but I can see how the push of the enemy is so cunning, you know, to come to say all sorts of things about God and who he is and how he, what he does for us, just, just to miss out of the simple way in which God prepared from the beginning our salvation. Mm. That's why I think these texts that we've been looking at this morning are so important, right from the very first one, which Len read to us. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. Mm. And so right from the very beginning, it's clear that because of God's attitude of love towards us, that he stepped in and did the things that he did. Not because he's going to zap me because I stepped out of line, because his love for me was was more immense than I can possibly understand. That's yeah. And then the, all the texts that, you know, that Alan and Lydia and, and I and then have read this morning all keep emphasizing this point that God's attitude towards us is an attitude of compassion. Yeah. And Lydia, you wanted to the say whole, something? Yes, the whole scripture is revealing who the Father is. God's plans is to prosper people and give them hope. As I said, in, uh, as I read in Jeremiah 29, 11, um, in Psalm 145 and 8, it says, God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger. In Psalm 143, verse 8, he sa it says that he is faithful, has unfailing love and delights in his followers. So in, in Zephaniah 3.17, it says, in his love, he will no longer rebuke, but rejoices over his people with singing. So one reason um, that Christ came to this world was to reveal the truth about God the Father. Through the centuries, wrong ideas about him and his character had become widespread, not just among the heathen, but among God's chosen nations as well. Yes, so listeners, if you've got this idea that God is up there just waiting for you to make a mistake and then he's going to punish you, forget it. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that God the Father is kind and loving and compassionate and faithful and wants our very best. Well, we're going to move on from that and have a look at God the Son or God the Word who is, of course, Jesus Christ. Stephen, you probably don't even need to look these texts up, but would you like to share with our listeners John chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, plus verse 14? Yeah, sure, I can do that. The problem I always have, if I try and do it from memory, I have all the different versions in my head and I end up getting all muddled up. But this is what the NIV says. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. And then verse 14 says, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Okay. It uh, identifies him as the word, as God, and being with God. Mm. And if you read on in the chapter, you'll see that that word clearly points to Jesus Christ. And why did he come to this planet? I would like to say that the word, it means the voice, which this uh, inspires communication. So from the beginning, God is a communicating 
person. He wants to to express his voice to us and for us to hear his word. So God is a communicator. God, he wants to communicate to us, to have a relationship with us. It means he is love. Now, my question was, why did Jesus come to this planet? There are three reasons at least. Well, there's one reason found in verse 18. If you go down to verse 18 of John chapter 1, it says, No one has ever seen God, but God the one and only. And we know that God the one and only is Jesus because verse 14 describes him as the one and only. But God the one and only who was at the Father's side has made him known. Okay. So part of what Jesus does when he comes into our world or when he came into our world is that he makes him known. And when we talk a little bit later on about the love that God has for us through the Holy Spirit, we find that the Holy Spirit makes known who Jesus is to us so that we might know who God is in his fullness. Okay. So, so it means to reveal God's character. Yeah, to reveal the Father. Yes. Now, there are two other reasons. Number two is that he came to save us. That's kind of like the most important one, probably really the number one reason. That's right. And there's another reason, too. He came to show us how to live. Mm. And all this was done because he loved us. Just one comment on what Steve just said, uh, how important is uh, the second one which you mentioned, then to save us. And it's true from our point of view, from the humanity, you know, of course, that's what counts the most for us. Mm. But... For sure, Jesus came here not only for us, you know, he came also to reveal God's character. And that was also, there were some other beings, if you like, other worlds watching about what Jesus was doing on this earth. Okay. And I would like also to mention that in all these three points uh, also is included the fact that God, the Father and Jesus, they wanted to restore us back to the unfallen because we we are we are fallen beings we are sinful so god cannot see us living on this earth on this sinful earth uh, full of pain and troubles and sorrows so he came jesus came to restore us back to god the father and jesus in the uh, message um, version of the bible eugene peterson puts it God is in the business of putting things right. Mm -hmm. I think that's well said. Mm -hmm. Alan, would you like to read for us, please, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through to 8? Um, I'll be reading from the New King James Version, and it says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. All right. Now, there are people who claim that Jesus Christ, they don't disclaim his being here, his existence, but some say, well, he was just a good man. Others say he was a wise teacher. Others say he was a prophet. And others say he was a clever philosopher. But from those texts that you read, Alan, what does it indicate about who he actually was? He was God. He was God. 
and he came here on a special mission to restore fallen mankind. I like what this passage says because it tells me that Jesus was prepared to give up stuff or God the Son was prepared to give up things. One of the other versions describes it as saying, though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Mm. You know, if I was God, I'd find it very hard to give up the attributes and the capacities that being God would have. Yet Jesus chose, or God the Son chose, to put those things aside yeah. because he loved us so much to come into our world that he might be able to redeem us, to put us back to where we originally were, like Lydia was saying before. And that, for me, is quite an amazing thing. Yeah, yeah. And also about the divinity, you know, of Jesus Christ. Uh, some people will say, you, you see, I mean, he's not equal to God. I mean, he's not God. He's he's just the son of God, or he's. And we need to understand through the verses which we read here that Jesus said himself in the nature in which he was here on this earth. You know, taking our human nature, he was referring to that that he was not considering, even though he knew that he was God, and he kind of had those two natures, if you like, God and man, the son of man and the son of God yeah, at the in, same time. In verse 7 it says, instead he gave up his divine privileges, or the Greek says he emptied himself. Yeah. That's pretty incredible really, to become a person so that he could show us who God was, redeem us back as God the Father intended, and put us back where he originally had placed us, right back at the very beginning of the Bible story. Absolutely. And you know, as Apostle Paul puts it, Jesus was tempted like any one of us, you know, but he was victorious. And that's the thing which he would like to emphasize in, in here when he mentions about that he, he didn't consider to be equal to God, you know. Uh, he was fighting this fight which we are fighting at the moment, and he showed us that if we are faithful to him, we can be victorious in him. Yes. Now, Lydia, you've been wanting to say something for quite a while. Jesus was fully God and fully human. In Hebrew 1.3 and Hebrew 13.8, uh, it says that this means that the one who upholds all things by the word of his power was the same one who was found as a babe lying in a manger. This means that the one who is before all things and in him all things consists. So Christ was eternal and not dependent upon anyone or anything for his existence. He was God, not the mere outward appearance of God, but God himself. So his essential nature was divine and eternal. Uh, Jesus retained uh, that divinity but became a human being in order to keep the law uh, in, uh, in human flesh and to die as a substitute for all those who have broken the law which uh, is all of us. Mm. Now I've got a motorbike which is called a dual purpose motorbike. It's made to go on the road, on the bitumen road, and it's made to go on the dirt. It's both and yet it's one. And here is what you're talking about. Christ has both a divine nature and a human nature. Let's move on. Lydia, do you have Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39 that you could read to us, please? I would like to read uh, just one verse up above, and which it says, 
which th this text goes just straight away to my heart. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors f through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now we started out by talking that God is love. And this verse, verse 39 at the end says, The love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Tell me, how do you d demonstrate your love to another human being, your wife, your family, your brother, sister, whoever, how do you show that love? I guess you speak it, so you use words, you tell them, yes. um, and then you use your, I guess you use your actions to demonstrate that, that the words that you say are real. Exactly. Yes. Yes, Alan? Um, yes, um, I believe that the you demonstrate your love, number one. Um, there, actually, there are three ways. Number one is you... Um, just you uh, spend time with them. Number two is you always talk about them. And the third way is that um, you defend them when um, someone talks mm -hmm. badly about them. Yeah. And also num there's actually a fourth method, which is subconscious. When you um, spend a lot of time with a person and you love them, you tend to actually reflect their character. You could easily say that Jesus demonstrated his love in all those ways. The love mm. of God is demonstrated in all those ways. But there's one ultimate way where he demonstrated his love. And I would like to say it also in another way. I like formulas, you know. <laughs> I remember a bit easier. And I just learned the, the Jesus of the four S's. And the first one is to sympathize people okay to socialize with people as alan just mentioned to serve them in order to save them most important thing for us that jesus came here to save us but in order to do that he show us his real true love in all other things which i just mentioned mm. that's the ultimate demonstration of love it is to give his life for us and I say this, worthless critters down here, that we can have the companionship of God throughout eternity. Well, I don't think there's too many questions about the love of God, the love of Father, the love of the Father, the love of the Son. Now we're going to have a look at the love of the Holy Spirit. Now I realise that there are people who have different views about the Holy Spirit. Some say that um, the Holy Spirit's sort of just a force, like electricity or just an attraction. My question is, panel, is the Holy Spirit a force or an attraction, or is the Holy Spirit a personality? Yes, what are your answers? Well, he's a person, isn't he? 
um, if I said to you, uh, Len, I think your motorbike sucks, you'd be somewhat upset, wouldn't you? Mm, maybe. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think, I mean, if, well, let me put it this way. Len, if you said to me that, you, you know, I don't like your Hyundai car, um, I'd be a bit sad. And um, because I like my car, I enjoy driving it. It's uh, comfortable to sit in. It's good on short trips and long trips. Uh, yeah, I know it's only a Hyundai, but it's still a nice car to be in. And so, if, Len, if you said to me, it's no good, I don't like it, I think it's a bit of a poor choice, I'd feel a bit sad about that. And I think it's the same with, you know, with, with God the Spirit. We can actually make him feel sad by the, by the attitudes and decisions that we make. The Bible even says that we shouldn't grieve the Holy Spirit, right? So if, if we can grieve someone, that means they must have some sense of person and therefore they must be more than just a force or a, um, what was the other word you used? A force or a, an attraction, I think, was the word yes, you used. Yes, yes. Yeah, uh, you first. The Holy Spirit has been misunderstood almost as much as the Father. Some theologians have thought of the Spirit as the love between the Father and the Son. In other words, the Spirit would be merely a Affection between the Father and the Son. This means that he would be dismissed to a relationship between two members of the Godhead and not a member himself. But Scripture proves his personhood. Christians are baptized in his name along with the Father and Son, which says in Matthew 28, 19, uh, the Spirit glorifies Christ. It says in John 16, 14, the Spirit convicts people in John 16:8 he can be grieved in Ephesians 4:30 he is a comforter in John 14:16 he is a helper and counselor and he teaches in Luke 12:12 12, 12. also he intercedes for us in Romans 8:26 and sanctifies in 1 Peter 1:2 so in John 16:13 Christ said the spirit guides people into all truth. In short, the Holy Spirit is God, as are the Father and the Son, and together they are one God. Okay. I think I think that that was yeah, quite a, a bit into what Lydia just said there uh, mentioning all those uh, verses. Coming also to a, again to a practical thing, because unfortunately, many people in the Christendom they will just uh, uh, have opinions and in regard to what they are hearing around, you know, they heard around, you know, preaching, you know, or some other people saying. But it's good to go back to the Bible, and the Bible proved to us that Jesus was a person. And one of the things which just Stephen just mentioned, I mean, he's a person which can be grieved, you know, or can be upset. I mean, Stephen, just if I will say uh, to your car, I'm just going in front of your car, and I say, you don't look good at all. Would a car say anything to me or uh, feel something? No. No, wouldn't, you know, but you would, yeah. because you are a person. The car is not a person. Exactly. You know, and that's uh, so simple, you know, when you just uh, take some of these uh, examples. And in the Bible says, and we'll look a little bit even more to see how the Holy Spirit was involved in the life of Jesus Christ on this earth, start from the beginning with his birth. Okay. And, of course, just before you say what you want to say, Alan, this will be quick. If you uh, look at your Bible and see any passage that refers to the Holy Spirit, it always uses the personal pronoun, mm. he, not the impersonal pronoun. 
And when you see the name of the Holy Spirit, and some versions say the Holy Ghost, they're always in capitals, like a name. Is that what you were going to say? Yes, that's what I was <laughs> going to say, Len. <laughs> All right. Now, I'm going to read to you from the book of John, chapter 16, and this is Jesus talking to the disciples about the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to ask you, I know religious alluded to this a little earlier, I'm going to ask you if you can pick out some of the things that the Spirit does, and coupled with that, what motivation does the Holy Spirit have in doing those things? So here the text's involved. When he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment, in regard to sin because men do not believe in me, in regard to righteousness because I'm going to the Father where you can see me no longer, and in regard to judgment because the prince of this world, that's Satan, now stands condemned. I've much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own, and he will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. So what are some of these things? There's a lot in that passage. I actually really, really like that passage. Mm. It's one that I've come to appreciate over the last couple of three years in particular. I think if I can start with verse 14, it says, "He," in my version, which is the NIV, it says, He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. So what that this is Jesus speaking, right? And so what that's saying is that the things that the Holy Spirit shares with people, and of course a force doesn't share stuff, does it? No. Um, when I think about forces, I think about Star Wars, you know, and... And in, in those movie series, the force was something that empowered, but it didn't share anything. Mm. Anyway, um, I could digress slightly. But it says here, he will share or he will make known to you the things that he gets from me. And so who does, what, what does he make known? Well, he actually makes known who Jesus is. So Jesus existed 2,000 years ago on planet Earth, and now he's in heaven, as we know from Matthew 28. Um, he's, oh, Acts chapter 1, sorry. Now he's in heaven, but the Holy Spirit is the being who, or the person who makes known to us who Jesus is. And if you go back to those earlier verses where it talks about the convicting that the Holy Spirit does, he convicts the world about sin, righteousness, and judgment, three things. And what's the sin? The sin is not believing in mm. Jesus. Yeah. And so his job is to get us to be able to believe and make a commitment to Jesus. That's what his, his task primarily is. And the second one is he convicts the world about righteousness. And what's the righteousness? Because Jesus says, I am going to the Father where you can see me no longer. So we can't see Jesus, but the Spirit can make him known to us. And Jesus gets to go to the Father because he lived that perfect life. He was that righteous person so that in order that we can go there too. And then finally it says um, to convict the world about judgment. And this is really interesting because the judgment is that the prince of this world now stands condemned. So the prince of this world who wants to drag us away from God, the God who loves us, who loved us before the creation of this world, um, stands condemned because of what Jesus has done and because Jesus is already in heaven waiting for us. And so the Spirit makes that Jesus, that God, known to us. I think yeah. it's really quite amazing. Yeah. Ledger, you want to say something? Yes. In other words, what Stephen said, 
the Holy Spirit convicts the world of guilt. So the Holy Spirit in our days, in my days, when I'm living now, he convicts me of sin. If I sinned, the Holy Spirit comes into my heart and is talking to me and is showing me that I've sinned and guides you into all truth and after all guides me to come to the Father and confess my sins because I need my Savior to wash my sins through His blood and be clean again. So also says, speaks only what He hears, tells you about the future, so tells me about my future with the Lord and the resurrection and in all this we bring glory to Christ. So this is what I feel that the Holy Spirit's work is in me as I live now. Another thing is that, um, as you mentioned a bit earlier, Len, that some people believe this and that, even in Christendom. Again, Satan is concentrating his forces to, to twist around, you know, the nature of God and the attributes of God. And in this case, through these three persons, which in history, they have a particular specific thing to do for each one of us. And how important is today when the work of the Holy Spirit is for us here now, and Lydia just mentioned, how important is to understand the role and the works of the Holy Spirit and not to be deceived. And I will say now to our uh, listeners also, there are many things in the world preached and uh, about the Holy Spirit being a force, just being, uh, uh, you know, something out there. Regardless of what you think, I'll encourage you to look in the Bible and the Bible will speak for itself and the Bible will clarify what we need to know, I think, is to be acquainted with the Word of God. Yeah, what you say is quite right, Nick, and there are a lot of people who misrepresent the Holy Spirit. But I want to tell you a little story and then I want to ask you why the Spirit does what He does. We've just looked at some of the things He does. When I was a boy, around about eight or nine, I was with a friend. We lived in the country in a little village, and we had found a bush where there was a processionary moth nest. And we were there looking at this, and a car came along the road. We were not on the actual roadway, but near the side of the road. And the driver stopped and he said, could you tell me which way to go to Swan Reach? I'm not proud of what we did, but I said, you need to go that way, when in actual fact, he needed to go the opposite way. <laughs> but um, also, there were times when my father had been doing something and he would say, Len, can you tell me where the hammer is? And I told him where it was because I'd noticed where it was. Now, why did I tell my dad the truth and the driver of this car to go the wrong way? So that's the question that can hang in the air, and I think it serves to answer the next question is, how does the Holy Spirit demonstrate his love? Have I caught you a little bit off guard here? Yeah, I'm just trying to figure the, I'm um, trying to put the connection <laughs> to the story and the question in my head. Um. Well, it's because I had a relationship with my father. I loved my father. Mm. But this, this person who came along the road, I never knew them from a bar of soap. And so the Holy Spirit does what he does 
out of a motivation of love, just as does the Father mm. and the Son. That's the answer. And the reason we know that it's love is because he directs us to Jesus. And he directs us to Jesus because he knows that Jesus is the means for us to being in total connection with God. Yes. And if we don't have that connection with Jesus, then we don't have the connection with God that the Bible encourages. And that's why, And so because he loves us, that's why he pushes us in that direction. Yeah. Um, otherwise, he wouldn't be bothered, would he? Exactly right. Okay, well, we're going to move on to another issue. Oh, before we do, I... Yeah, I was just going to, to intervene here a little bit and take a short break because uh, I just realized that the time is going so fast today and probably we are not going actually to take a break as we usually do and maybe play a song because we have only 10 minutes left. And I would like in the next 10 minutes to yeah bring the the next part of the lesson and i believe uh, len you are going to talk about the assurance of salvation and the everlasting gospel and also to conclude um as much as we can in in regard to what we were just talking okay let's move on we're talking about salvation and the end time now many people say i'm saved but i'm not quite sure about it i'm saved if or something like that. How do you know that you're saved? What would you say, Lydia? I can say that um, if I have a stronger relationship with God permanently and I depend on God on everything and in this relationship I know the Lord, I know His voice, I know His guidance and I have experiences with Him along uh, my path in my life it means I have assurance of my salvation okay Alan would you like to read First John chapter 5 verse 11 okay so I'll be reading from the New King James Version and it says and this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son so what's a testimony a witness a witness, say if you go to court and a witness stands up and makes a testimony, what what sort of a statement is it? A legal statement. It's a legal statement. A true statement. A true statement. Yeah. So the testimony is that Jesus has come to save us and if we accept what he has done for us, we can be saved. I guess the thing I was going to say is what gives me confidence in this area is that it's not about me. So if I look at myself, I know my ups and my downs. I know my strengths and my weaknesses. And we tend to focus not on our strengths, on our ups. We tend to focus on our downs and our weaknesses, right? And so what I like about this is that it reminds you that my salvation isn't something that's dependent on my behavior or who I am. It's actually objectively outside and beyond me. Yes. And my salvation is guaranteed because of who Jesus is. And so because we know that he is, he is perfect, he is wonderful, he is great, he is God-made man, um, I can be confident that I can be saved whether I'm happy or whether I'm sad, whether I'm up or whether I'm down, because it's objectively outside of myself. Does that make sense? Yes. And just to, you know, we haven't got time to read all the passages for, uh, for this, but just to allude to some of them. For example, in uh, Psalm 91, verses 15, 16, I mean, God says that, um, call and I will, um, I will be with you to protect, to honor you 
and you'll see my saving power. In jo- Joel, the, the same, in chapter 2, the Lord will save everyone who faithfully worshipped him. You know, it says everyone. In John, for example, chapter 10, verses, verse 28, I will give them eternal life. And no one can snatch them out of my hand. Yeah, that last line is really good. If Jesus is going to give us eternal life and no one can snatch us out of his hand, that's got to give us confidence, yeah? Yeah. At least it gives me a lot of confidence. If I've got something in my hand and I squeeze it tight and my son comes along and tries to unpry my fingers from my grip, he can't do it, right? Mm -hmm. Jesus is God. I can't pry his hand apart, pry his fingers apart, and get things out of there. That means that I'm as safe and secure as possible. There is nothing more safe than that. Yeah. You were just alluding to um, uh, John chapter 10, verses 27 and 28. 28. Yeah. And it's twice it says there, I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. Verse 29, my father who's given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my father's hand. And then he says, I and the father are one. What about if you don't feel, I mean, we're we're talking about assurance of salvation. What about if you don't feel? Well, that's the trick. That's what's so good about this, because it's not based on how I feel. It doesn't matter if I'm feeling happy or sad, good or bad, great or weak, whatever it might be. I'm still in Jesus' hand. I'm still in the Father's hand, and no one can snatch me out of that, no matter how I might feel. My feelings are almost irrelevant. Well, they are irrelevant on this discussion. Yes. And that's what's, so, that's what's so good, because mostly when we have our doubts, it's when we're down. When we're up and we're happy and it's all going great, we're confident and we're reassured and we're, you know, it's all good. It's when we feel down and depressed and upset that um, doubts arise. And this says it doesn't matter how you feel. You are safely held in the hollow of the Father's hand. How beautiful is that? Yeah. If we believe, we are saved. And that's the trick, uh, Len, actually. Even Jesus himself was uh, into, uh, in, in this situation when he was moved by his feelings, you know. And when, what he said when he was moved by, by mm. the feelings, he said, Father, depart from me this cup. And that was because how he felt, you mm. know. But he said something amazing after that. But in your hands, I commit my life because I trust in you. Jesus knew that God will even raise him from the dead because that was the promise of God. Mm. And we need to be faithful. We need to relay on or what God promised us, not on how we feel. And if I go a little bit further, in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 to 11, it says that all who call out the Lord will be saved. Mm. And there are many people who say, yeah, just call the Lord and you'll be saved. But this one actually brings something more. Because in uh, Matthew, for example, uh, chapter 7, uh, a little verse 21, says that no one who will just call me lord lord will be saved but those ones who do the will of the father and i can go more into into this just to see that we have a part to play because we are saved because we have eternal life in jesus christ then we have a part to do and not to be saved but because we are saved we'll keep the commandments of god will obey the law because in the bible says that who loves me keep my commandments and so on 
Yes, and that's of course what Jesus said. And uh, if you love me, keep my commandments. I, I, can I just say something on this one? Because this, yeah. this is a, a pet, pet topic of mine. It's not an if and then. It's, it's more of a, how do I put it? A response. Well, because you have been saved, this is what is going to naturally happen. Yeah. So we're, when I was a kid and I used to read this passage, I used to get all agitated and upset. And I'd go, well, I've made mistakes. I'm doomed. But the reality of life is that we're on a journey with God, and this will all sort itself out in time as life goes along. But those who um, who have called on the name of God, it says, if, For if it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. Once you move to that position of being a saved person, the, the love of God and the following after God will take care of itself. It will happen. It's like... If I wash myself with soap, I will be clean. It's one of those kind of things. It's not if I wash myself with soap, then I've got to make myself clean. Uh-huh. I am clean. Really, I know Does that make saying. sense? I, yes. not, not, not the best analogy yes. because it could be confusing, but it's the best I can think of off the top of my head in the spur of the moment. Okay. And, and uh, Stephen, yes, I mean, looking again uh, in um, the majority of Christian, and that's a question which really troubles me, you know, I mean, a, a, a topic. How can a son of God or a, or a Christian can say that or can have the assurance that he is saved disregarding God's law. Mm. Because that's that's very, very interesting. You know, I mean, a lot of people, unfortunately, in Christendom, they will disregard yeah. Yeah, but that the brings law us back of God. To that, that's right, Nick. But that brings us back to where we were just a little while ago before when we talked, I think Lydia was mentioning it, that the Holy Spirit will guide you into all oh, truth. Yeah. And he will do it in his time. Yeah. We might sit back and we might say, well, you know, they're not doing this and they're not doing that. They're obviously not really saved. Well, that's not how it works because we're focusing now on the actions. The salvation happens because of God's action and action for me, not in my life, but for me outside of my life. And once I believe that, then I'm a saved person. And then the Spirit will do his work in me and he will lead me and guide me into all truth. That's how it works. Yeah. Otherwise, we can go through all some of the great people from the past. We go, well, they didn't do that one, so yeah. we're going to give them the big cross. That's not how it works. That's that's what happens in the process of living the life of a saved person, not in order to be saved, but living the life of a person who has already been saved. Uh, just one quick comment that for sure, I mean, not being judgmental towards other people, that was not uh, intentional. I'm sure you weren't intending no, that. But no. what I'm trying to say is that uh, I'm looking at myself mm. and I'm looking in, uh, in accordance with uh, I mean, Matthew chapter uh, 7 when those people came and said, but haven't we done this and that and that in your name? And Jesus says, depart from me. I never knew you. Well, I guess what I would say then is that actions don't always indicate the nature of the relationship or the acceptance of what God has already done. You know, when the when the when the virgins come in the story of um, the wise and foolish virgins, when the foolish virgins come to them and knock at the door, what does the bridegroom say? He says, "Depart from me, I do not know you." And knowing is love, right? Anyway, I, I could go on at this, and we'd run out of time completely. On, and Len's busting to say something, so we better pass it back well, to no, him. Oh no, I know we've got to um, try and get through here and we've got another section to do yet about the everlasting gospel let me read you a text revelation fourteen six, um where it says then i saw another angel flying in mid-air and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth to every nation tribe language and people what sort of gospel was it claimed to be eternal eternal yeah yeah eternal or everlasting so here's a question for you if it's an everlasting, an eternal gospel, 
Will the gospel be significant for the saved during the endless ages of eternity? Yes, because we are saved and we get to be in the endless age of, ages of eternity because of the good news of what Jesus has done for us. And that's yes. always the basis on why we enjoy eternity with the Father, with the Spirit and with the Son, because of what God the Son and Christ did for us. That's really the only thing that gives meaning to being there, doesn't that's, it? That's right. It's not because we deserve it, it's because of what God has done. Well, now, if you look into the future and you can say, yes, what about looking into the past? Was the eternal gospel in existence before the world began? Yeah. And probably I will, I will say now, uh, that's what we need to be careful not to be so trapped into the cultural uh, way of, uh, of living, you know, saying, okay, yeah, this was referring just in the past or many years ago, but it's not relevant today. Actually, the Word of God, it's everlasting and it's relevant yesterday, today and tomorrow. Yes, Legit. He chose, so God chose us in Him before the foundation mm. of the world that we should be holy. Yeah. and without blame before him in love. The only thing is that we are called, even commanded, to live holy lives. If we don't have, have holy lives now in our lives, we cannot be with Christ there. So God's people will be found faithful and obedient in the last days, a faithfulness and obedience that arises from the assurance of what Christ has done for us, for me and for you. So the everlasting gospel existed before the world began, although it didn't have to be put into place, but existed there, and it will exist through eternity, and man, am I glad about that. You know, there's one point I would like us to finish on, but we just have to, I'm getting the signals. The thing is, what makes a difference in the life of a Christian? Somebody alluded to Matthew chapter 7, where Jesus sorted the people out and some came to him and said look Lord we've done this that and the other and the end was he said depart from me you evil ones I never knew you friends the most important thing regardless is the relationship that we have with this loving God thank you very much for that Len and uh, I hope that uh, all our listeners there will uh, really Consider uh, this subject and go back to the Bible and uh, search for uh, yourselves and uh, find out about uh, that almighty loving God because uh, we can't do anything uh, on our own but just trusting in God and have faith in Him. I hope that you'll have a blessed time until next time when we'll meet again. But until then, may God bless you and I uh, wish you that you'll walk in the footsteps of Jesus.